cannot integrate Indigenous sciences without integrating the Indigenous peoples as well. We cannot remove the sciences or the knowledges from the people. I'm Tiffany Patton, and this is Real Food Reads, the book club and podcast from Real Food Media, where we bring you into conversation with the authors of some of the best new books on food culture and food politics. When it comes to conservation, the Western inclination is to conserve by further separating humans from nature, as if the only way to protect it is to isolate it. But what if we looked at it differently? What if we followed the leadership of indigenous people around the world, protect their surroundings while working and living with them? Dr. Jessica Hernandez, author of Fresh Banana Leaves, Healing Indigenous Landscapes Through Indigenous Science, discusses some of the limitations of conservation while also sharing what it really means to be an Indigenous scientist and how we can change the world around us through Indigenous practices. I learned a lot from reading this book and talking with Dr. Jessica Hernandez, and I hope you do too. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Jessica Hernandez, a Maya Chorti and Zapotec scientist and founder of environmental agency Pina Sol, about her book, Fresh Banana Leaves, Healing Indigenous Landscapes Through Indigenous Science. Fresh Banana Leaves offers another way of looking at environmentalism and land stewardship situating these things within a long, painful history of settler colonialism. And using a compelling mix of case studies, history, and personal stories, she shows how things have gone woefully wrong and illuminates multiple liberatory paths forward, paths that truly center indigenous peoples and protect nature. Jessica, thank you so much for joining us today. Wendell Paducci, thank you for having me here today. You mentioned in this book how you're what is called here an interdisciplinary scientist and that it is also a very academic and Western way of looking at the type of scientist you are. So why does the study of multiple disciplines just make sense to you? And what does it mean to not just be an interdisciplinary scientist, but an indigenous scientist? Oftentimes, because the way that Western societies think, they think very binary, where they place things in boxes. In this case, they place certain knowledges or topics about certain things in our environments and physical worlds in systems. And oftentimes when you study multiple systems, right, they usually refer to it as systems thinking or interdisciplinary approaches. As an indigenous scientist, our worldviews are more holistic. They don't tend to follow the reductionary scientific method, which kind of makes our thinking very linear and binary. In indigenous science, we place all of our relations to our animals, our plants, our non-living relatives as well, you know, like rocks, abiotic factors in the center of what the science that we practice. And I think that with Western science, they're always telling us to remove those kind of relationships because of the name of objectivity. And as a result, the sciences that we practice in the academy or in the world, in the society, tend to be a cultural, a historical, a political. So for indigenous sciences, because most of these science approaches and their knowledges are being used to protect our environments, they cannot be the same. They cannot be a cultural, a political, or a historical. That's why I like to refer to myself as an indigenous scientist because our knowledges also adapt and they also formulate time after time as we undergo many things like settler colonialism, climate change, displacement, and so forth. Mm-hmm. And You also make a point of calling it indigenous science as opposed to traditional ecological science. Can you tell us why? As a trained scientist in the Western sciences and the environmental and physical sciences, oftentimes when we bring up the word traditional ecological knowledge, 
most scientists, which tend to be white cisgender men, they kind of fixate on the word traditional. So they continue to seem like they're acknowledging our indigenous ways of knowing, but they still refer to our people in the past tense. They also tend to romanticize our communities. It's important to mention that not every indigenous person has a strong relationship with nature because of these ongoing mechanisms that are being used to displace us from our ancestral lands where some of our indigenous lands have become cities. So there's this reclaiming of relationships with the word traditional ecological knowledge. At least in my experiences, scientists tend to focus more on the past because of the word traditional. It's just what they're connecting to when they hear the word traditional, as opposed to indigenous science. And that's why I like to call it that is because, you know, it's adapting. There's still new knowledge that's being formulating. Unfortunately, some of that knowledge is formulating because of the climate change impacts that we have to face and also the displacement that many indigenous peoples experience, whether it be externally across borders or internally from their ancestral homelands to cities or other locations within the, you know, confined borders that make up a country. Mm -hmm. As you mentioned, right, it's another form of erasure to situate indigenous people in the past and also, another thing that you mentioned, um, Justin Rao, is that um, you mentioned cities and also in the book you said, like, you know, it's another form of erasure, right? That cities or urban landscapes are for the non-Indigenous. And just because a lot of Indigenous people have been pushed to live in the margins doesn't mean they exist there solely. And cities are Indigenous lands, too. So this season of Real Food Reads, our primary focus is on biodiversity. And, you know, there are these statistics floating around. That Indigenous peoples make up less than 5% of the total human population, but support 80% of global biodiversity. So what does this tell us about Indigenous wisdom and science? When we practice Western sciences, um, one of the reasons why they have dismissed Indigenous ways of knowing or Indigenous science is because oftentimes scientists, at least in my experiences, have told me that our data is not numerical, right? Because in the sciences, we tend to focus more on numerical data as opposed to qualitative data that embodies, you know, indigenous ways of knowing, like storytelling, songs, prayers, ceremonies, all of those things that are not translated into numbers. And I think that oftentimes one of the reasons that we can push against that is giving them those statistics that are known, right? Where indigenous people steward 80% of the world's biodiversity, which means that something in their ecosystems or environments is actually helping steward and caretake and allow us to thrive in an environment that oftentimes when we look at other biodiversity in other regions that are not managed by indigenous peoples or stewarded by them, there's still a lot of animals and plant species that are being listed as endangered. And as a result of that, we see how indigenous ways of knowing is working. 50% of the world's biodiversity is located in what is now known as Latin America, which also includes the Caribbean, South America, Mexico, Central America. And oftentimes we tend to forget that, especially when, you know, going beyond the United States border and Canadian borders, we don't have that transnational indigenous solidarity that's important for us to maintain, especially given that 50% of the world's biodiversity is located in Latin America. Those statistics help us push against the fact that, you know, many people, many scientists say that indigenous ways of knowing cannot be, you know, made into numerical data, which is what drives the sciences, especially today. Mm-hmm. That reminds me of um, another another episode of Real Food Reads. I spoke with Liz Carlisle about her book, Healing Grounds, and we focused in on a chapter called 
the hidden hotspots of biodiversity. And those hidden hotspots, as Liz called them, are located in the Central Valley of California, a place that is known for like industrial agriculture and monocultures. But Liz, along with the soil scientist Ida Guzman, found all of these hubs of biodiversity primarily in the home gardens of Mexican Laotian folks. And so I just thought that was really interesting that, again, biodiversity isn't always transferred into these numbers. And I'm curious, what do you think is missing from the general narrative when we talk about decreasing biodiversity? Yeah, I think when we talk about decreasing biodiversity in general, this um, relationship that humans should be sustaining with nature is missing. So oftentimes, even in my presentations, I like to ask people to rate how strongly the statement nature protects you as long as you protect nature aligns with their beliefs. And oftentimes they um, rate it really high, right? You know, everyone um, wants to believe that manifests in their own individuality. But then when I ask them, what about the actions? They tend to rate that lower. Do we have a strong relationship with nature as humans? Um, Everyone thinks that we do, but in reality, we don't. Even the example that you just gave, it shows how even people today may believe that, but you know, it's only a certain subset of the populations, especially communities in the United States, are actually taking those actions, those initiatives to actually protect our environments and also make that connection between humans and nature stronger. People think it is there, but obviously it's not. And you know, that statistics you just provided shows how, you know, even the reality today points to the other way, right? That only certain communities are actually taking that action to make that statement true. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to something that you just said, which is nature protects you as long as you protect nature. And that's another thing that you've said throughout your book. So often when the U.S. or the minority world talks about protecting nature, they're talking about conservation. And that conservation often involves displacing more people. Um, Can you tell us more about how conservation is a Western construct and what the alternative is? Yeah, so conservation is a Western construct because when we look at the history of conservation, because it's a science, they started to say it was a historical, a cultural, a political. But when we actually look at the history of conservation, when it's founded, conservation was kind of created to protect or in the way put into boxes these beautiful lands that they deemed as majestic, pristine wilderness that and were converted into national parks. When we think of national parks, right, we associate it with tourism, we associate it with beautiful pictures, with the hot spot that everyone wants to take their families to. That's what national parks were intended to do, to kind of protect these environments, because for Europeans and also white Americans, they never understood that humans can actually coexist with those environments and actually successfully steward them and caretake for them. Because, you know, obviously there's no extraction or these American capitalistic ideologies that are enabled that are destroying our environment. When we look at the history of conservation and the establishments of these national parks, there's a violent history that is often ignored behind these elements. And that's the forced displacement of indigenous peoples from those parks because it wasn't something that they agreed to do peacefully. It was something that they were forced to do violently by um, American military or government entities. When we look at conservation, it's it's it has a dark history that's always kind of kept beneath the surface. And conservation tends to focus on one element of the environment. If we talk about a conservation project to protect 
the orcas, right, in the state of Washington, they focus mm-hmm. more on the animal, but they tend to ignore the holistic picture. Like, why is it that, you know, we have a decline in orcas? It's because the salmon populations are declining. What's leading to the declining of the salmon populations, climate change, urbanization, and things like that. So conservation tends to, in a way, put under a microscope the project while failing to see the bigger picture, which is interconnecting all elements of the environment that are leading to the need to conserve that one species. That's the major differences here. And so what are some of the ways that we should or could think about protecting the land that aren't steeped in this like settler colonialism and need to conquest? Yeah, one of the things that I always uh, advocate for is to return the land back to indigenous peoples and obviously indigenous peoples, uh, at least in the general sense, we have never owned the land. So we never had those, you know, like all that the land is meant to be owned. The land is meant to provide for us with the land back movement and allowing indigenous peoples to steward and caretake of those lands. It will allow us to create more holistic conservation projects. It's always important that, you know, when we're trying to establish conservation projects, especially in areas across America, so globally, we should also work with the local indigenous communities of those regions so that we don't continue to further oppress them, especially given that, you know, whatever we're trying to conserve is already impacting them, you know, whether it be declines in certain animal populations, declines in certain plant populations. And I think that, you know, putting indigenous peoples to lead the table is a way to do that, right? But oftentimes when we talk about including indigenous peoples, um, scientists usually offer a seat at the table, but that seat is just to take up space because indigenous peoples are still not listened to. It's moving away from um, having scientists, especially, you know, world-renowned scientists who have all these, you know, publications and prestige and academy to lead those conservation projects, we should move to allowing indigenous peoples to be the lead of those conservation projects. They know what's best for their communities, and there is this ancestral knowledge that is place-based, right? So they know so much about the current location, and scientists coming outside of that place who were not raised there are just learning. So how do we address that without co-opting Indigenous ways of knowing and without dismissing the autonomy that Indigenous peoples should actually practice today? So something that this book made much more clear for me is what is meant and what is at stake when, um, when you hear that Indigenous people are on the front lines of the climate crisis. And so always, you know, thinking about, of course, it's about loss of land and home and livelihood. But what your book really, again, made more clear was that with this loss comes extreme ecological grief and also a risk to spirituality and spiritual practices. Um, And something that you mentioned already was that, you know, like the plants and the rocks and animals, they're not just plants and rocks and animals, right? They're a type of relative. Can you share a little bit more about this this ecological grief and risk to spirituality and spiritual practices that comes with being on the front lines of the climate crisis? We have to connect it back to our creation stories, especially, you know, every indigenous community has a different creation story based on their location. But at least um, for my communities, the creation stories tell us that our ancestors were created from the native animals, the native plants, and also the abiotic resources that are, you know, within that environment. So 
um, it kind of shows how we strongly believe that nature is a part of us and we're a part of nature. And that's because we were created from these natural elements. And I think that oftentimes when we think of, you know, creation stories, especially Western dominant religions, it doesn't focus so much on the natural pieces or how humans were created from from nature and as a result nature is a part of us but i think for indigenous peoples our creation stories kind of dictate or kind of can point to why we have those strong relationships and those beliefs today i love how you've talked about the connection between art and culture and nature specifically when you talk about women and weaving so can you tell me more about this interconnectedness and its importance culturally and spiritually we attach it to how we strongly believe that we are a part of nature and nature is a part of us. A lot of our regalia or traditional clothing, like in my case, it will be with Diles, we tend to embroider or weave a lot of the, the native flowers or the native landscapes that we have in our communities. So for our Zapotec regalia or traditional clothing, we weave a lot of our native flowers that are, you know, located in our regions. And I think that for other indigenous communities, they tend to do that. So I think that our clothing kind of becomes a reflection of our beliefs that we are a part of nature and nature is a part of us. Oftentimes we say that, you know, they're kind of like the canvas that we have to bring in that natural element or that natural landscape into us, you know, with us. Even like my grandmother used to tell me that whenever I well my, wear my wipil, I was kind of wearing part of my country or part of my ancestral lands because maintaining that relationship and maintaining those memories that are important, especially for displaced indigenous peoples, right, who don't have access to living in their lands or who cannot live in their lands anymore. Our traditional clothing allows us to carry that element of nature in our landscapes with us anywhere we go. I want to talk about bananas now. Obviously, we have to, considering the title of your book and also the impact that bananas have had on Central America. Um, bananas aren't native to Central America, where so many are now produced, right? They are primarily native to Southeast Asia and Australia and were introduced to the Americas by settlers. And then this food item became a commodity crop and the large-scale production of bananas, supported by the U.S. government, drove land dispossession and genocide of indigenous peoples in places like Guatemala and El Salvador. So can you tell us a little bit about the United Fruit Company and the CIA's role in fueling this land theft, genocide, and political and economic instability in Central America? Central American countries, especially in terms of Guatemala and, and El Salvador, were able to get a lot of support from the United States was because there was this uh, misinformation spread that, you know, that indigenous peoples and peasants who wanted to go against these oppressive monocultural agricultural corporations like the United Fruit Company, that they wanted to spread communism during that time period because of what was happening in Russia and also because, you know, it, and it still happens today, right, where if you say the word communism, the United States and also Canada, because I think oftentimes we forget the role that Canada also played. They're quick to act, especially in the Americas, to stop the spread of communism. So during that time period, they were leading a coup to kind of overthrow certain presidential officials that were actually supporting indigenous rights, that were supporting peasant rights, where they were trying to reclaim some of the land that had been previously sold in large quantities through land grabs back to the indigenous peoples and the peasant populations. So it also goes back to the international power that these international monoculture agricultural corporations and introduced plantation systems into Central America have. So I think that 
with that and using the CIA and other um, political actors to spread that this was actually not a land back movement or it wasn't a movement to go against oppression, settler colonialism, but rather a movement to spread communism is why the United States and Canada was quick to act and provide both governments with military aid in the form of weapons and also violent training to instill fear in the indigenous communities and the peasant communities that wanted to fight against this oppression. They use really violent tactics that traumatized them that were instilling fear. And one of those tactics was to burn homes so that indigenous children will be forced to join the military. As a result of that, we saw how the United States and Canadian governments were aiding this genocide, right? Because it was targeting indigenous peoples. It was murdering indigenous leaders who were organizing these resistance movements. It's all in the name of, you know, spreading misinformation and spreading this fear in communism that, you know, that makes countries, global countries like the United States and in Canada, be quick to act and aid the military and the governments during that time. They played a big role in what led to the ongoing genocide that ended in the 90s that we speak of today. And um, that reminds me, uh, we had one of our uh, Real Food Media like friends and allies, uh, this uh, man named Jose Oliva, and he uh, was telling me how uh, back in the 40s, his grandfather was tapped to be the vice minister of agriculture in Guatemala. And part of his job was to do a mapping of all the arable land in the country. And basically, um, when they realized that so much of the land was owned by United Fruit Company, they wanted to you know, pay the market rate, rate for chunks of the land um, and then redistribute it. But then that was obviously an issue because they wanted that land for their banana plantations and the Eisenhower administration like overthrew that government in Guatemala and it triggered that civil war that lasted for over 30 years and killed hundreds of thousands of people. Not only the fear of communism, but the fear of losing any sort of power, even though it's not, not theirs to claim, triggers so much loss and devastation. Despite the, you know this, and despite this bloody and painful history, the banana plant has been incorporated into traditional diets and has been imbued with another meaning for many people, but a special one for you and your family. Can you tell us why this book is called Fresh Banana Leaves? That goes back to even how our elders, at least my elders, teach us that um, invasive species are displaced relatives, right? Because while they might not necessarily be our relatives. In our native lands, there's someone's relatives. And I think that with banana trees, it's not like we had this terrible relationship with the banana tree. It was more the terrible relationship that we had because the the companies that were, you know, as you mentioned, were governing these banana trees, these plantations were being oppressive and obviously, you know, led to the over throwing the president of Guatemala during that time, who was actually for, you know, for the land back movement to support indigenous communities. As a result of that, my father, especially in the war, when he was forcefully recruited, he was 11 years old. Children, I think at, at the age of 10, were, you know, recruited to join the military because, you know, obviously during that um, back and forth fighting, we lost a lot of our men. So they had to move to the next thing, which is usually young boys um and that's you know sometimes histories that are kind of seen throughout you know the global south when he was 11 
um, the military came and burned down his home. Luckily, you know, his mom, because he had lost his father during that time, wasn't there. And he had four younger siblings. During that time period when they burned down his home, he was enraged. And while he may not have necessarily understood the, the grounds of why indigenous peoples were revolting, right? Because he was 11 years old. He mm-hmm. decided to join the guerrilla just because, you know, he knew that this was very oppressive, especially the way that the military came and burned homes. Sometimes they will burn homes and, you know, content warning. They will burn homes with people inside. And I think that that was one of the violent tactics that the United States and, and, and Canadian governments kind of supported, especially instilling this fear to calm down, as they will say, the indigenous revolutionaries. So as a result of that, he joined the guerrilla, which is, you know, was the resistance movement in his encampment. There was this banana tree. And, you know, as a child, obviously, you know, he was undergoing harsh realities during that time period. Like he was seeing a lot of gruesome deaths. You know, he was seeing the impacts of war. But as someone who was forced to join um, the war in itself, right, because he was forced to fight in it. During that time period, he developed this strong relationship with this banana tree because as a child, he kind of viewed it as his playground where he would climb the tree to escape the harsh realities that he was enduring in life. So my father, he still does this today. He still talks to animals. He still talks to plants as though they're humans, right? And oftentimes in Western society, that's like weird to see. But I think that that just shows how as indigenous peoples we view our animals and plants as relatives and how we show them respect. So three years into receiving that ongoing training to be able to fight in the guerrilla, his guerrilla encampment was located by the government, so it was bombarded. And during that time that my father described, his first instinct was to kind of hide under this banana tree. That just shows that, you know, he was still a child and he was trying to escape the harsh realities, right? That bombs were actually leading in terms of destroying everything that came in contact. So as he, you know, he went under this banana tree to, in a way, control his trauma and control what was going on, he saw a bomb drop on top of the banana tree. And instead of the bomb igniting, he saw how the banana tree leaves, in a way, wrap themselves to prevent the bomb from igniting, right? And mm-hmm. oftentimes, you know, in non-Indigenous worldviews, we can say that, oh, you know, maybe that bomb was malfunctioning or that bomb wasn't created in a way that it would ignite. But for my father, he strongly believes that that banana tree protected him and that it became an ancestor who was looking for us in the future, who was looking at the future seven generations. And as a result, it kind of, you know, foresaw us in the future. So it protected my father. And that's how, you know, after that incident, he was forced to, you know, travel through Guatemala, Mexico to seek refuge, right? That banana tree protected my father. And, you know, it's the reason why, you know, I was able to be alive and write this book. It's kind of like honoring that banana tree that that protected him, even though, you know, we look back at the histories, yes, they were um, going against these corporations that were introducing these plantations. But, um, you know, there's different ways that our people have built that relationship with banana trees. And that's why even today in our traditional foods, we have incorporated um, them into our diets as well. Thank you so much for sharing that story about your dad and about you. 
You start your book with your positionality and what it means to be a welcome or unwelcome guest. And um, as a Black person, I want to say that I really appreciate your view that Black folks are not settlers and are, in fact, Indigenous, right? Indigenous people whose indigeneity was fractured. So can you speak more to this like Black and Indigenous solidarity that you've embodied and wrote about in your book? Yeah. So one of the things um, that I was raised, especially by my grandmother, and given that my parents were the only ones displaced from our ancestral lands, it was that um, anywhere I went, I was an unwelcome guest. So my grandmother at a young age always told me to, to view lands as someone's home because, you know, those lands were Indigenous people's home. And as a displaced person, I was walking into their homes as an unwelcome guest. So as a result of that, I had to build not just the relationships with the land, but also the indigenous peoples who steward and caretake of the land or whose ancestors have a long history in those lands. So I guess in that sense, being raised under those worldviews, I always you know, even today, practice um, building relationships with the indigenous communities whose lands I'm currently residing on. That's how I have been able to navigate being a welcome guest to becoming a welcome guest. And that's all determined by the indigenous communities. And I think that when we talk about the black diaspora and at least in where I come from, right, we also have a lot of Afro-indigenous folks who are a part of our communities. And I think that as a result of that, it has shaped my understanding of Black indigeneity, especially as it pertains to how Indigenous peoples from Africa were forcefully brought to the United States to steward and caretake of these plantations, right? And I think that living in the in the coastal um, or being raised in the coastal regions of Oaxaca and also seeing the huge Afro-Indigenous communities of Central America, right? We talk about the Garifuna people. We talk about mm -hmm. other Indigenous peoples. I always saw Indigenous peoples to be both Black, Brown. And I think that that's way different than how society views Black people, especially when we look at the United States, right? Because they're, they're other, they're separated from Indigenous discourses. And I think that mm -hmm. that's not too, in a way be disrespectful of indigenous sovereignty but it's to acknowledge that indigenous peoples were forcefully brought to this continent and that there is an indigeneity that was fractured and i think that it's important for us to build black and indigenous solidarity while not forgetting that you know we do have black natives and afro-indigenous peoples who have you know who kind of live in those dualities of identities but to bring forward how this is stolen land that was stewarded and caretaken by stolen people who were forced to leave their ancestral homes as a result of that, right? There's a lot of healing that we have to do in both communities, but I think that that healing can be done together and resistance and solidarity is a part of that healing. But unfortunately, you know, there is anti-Blackness in many Indigenous communities. And while I was raised in that, you know, in that, in those dualities, I also have to acknowledge, right, that I do have privilege because I don't experience anti-Blackness, not being an Afro-Indigenous woman. So I think that it's important for us to also take action, but it will take time, right? Because I think that there's a lot of healing and trauma that we have to endure still. And I, and I think that's important because, not just because um, of my communities and how they're manifested, in, you know, both Afro-Indigenous and Indigenous peoples, but also because 
it's it's just the way that we're going to heal and move forward. But obviously, you know, there's a lot of layers that we have to peel. And, you know, I acknowledge the trauma that many Black folks are enduring today, right? Because their indigeneity was fractured, their ancestral lineages were stolen. And I think that it's something that we can make space for in my roles. I have one final question for you. If there was one thing that you wanted people to take away from this book, what would you like it to be? Yeah, I think one thing that I would like um, people to take away from this book is that Indigenous science is place-based. And oftentimes, um, you know, maybe for, you know, for white folks or for non-Indigenous people, they're going to think that this is a book on how to heal Indigenous landscapes with through Indigenous science, right? When we look at Black, Indigenous, and people of color literature, people think that we're kind of creating solutions and menus, right, to the oppression that we're facing. Oftentimes, um, we people look for for how to dismantle the oppression, but from people who are being oppressed, right? Like they think that we're going to provide them with the solutions. Mm-hmm. This goes to the book also because um, one of the messages that I say and that I acknowledge is that Indigenous science is place-based. So for us to heal Indigenous lands in the state of Washington, we have to work with the Indigenous peoples in this state. For us to heal Indigenous lands in California, we have to work with the Indigenous communities of California. Oftentimes, because of Western ways of knowing, we look for one-size-fits-all solutions when mm-hmm. in reality, Indigenous science is place-based. Indigenous science is also has been displaced, right? Whether it be through the Black communities that were displaced during colonization or other Indigenous peoples who are being displaced externally across borders, Indigenous sciences are still being displaced. And I think that hopefully people can understand that Indigenous science is not a one-size-fits-all model. So this book is not going to teach people how to heal Indigenous lands in Texas or in Florida, right? Because it's our knowledge is our place space and that Indigenous science cannot be applied in our you know, in policies or anything like that without including indigenous peoples. Because oftentimes mm-hmm. we see how we are raised to think that other ways of knowing or other knowledges are up for consumption. But in the case of indigenous sciences, we cannot integrate indigenous sciences without integrating the indigenous peoples as well. We cannot remove the sciences or the knowledges from the people. And we see that a lot with culture, how people want to consume our cultures but they don't want to bring forward the people who are sustaining those cultures. And we see that with with cultural appropriation. That's important to keep in mind when reading this book. It's incredibly place-based and people-based and not a one-size-fits-all solution. That reminds me of the study of agroecology, which is also very place-based and people-based. You can't just do what you've done in one area in a completely other region. You have to think about the history of that land and the people who originally resided there, not just their history, but their their presence. Jessica, thank you so much for joining us today for Real Food Reads. I really appreciated our conversation. Yeah, Padushi, thank you for having me here today and I really enjoyed it as well. I'm Tiffany Patton and that was Dr. Jessica Hernandez, author of Fresh Banana Leaves, Healing Indigenous Landscapes Through Indigenous Science. Thank you so much for listening and make sure to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. For more resources about the books, authors, and just what we're up to, make sure you check out our website at www.realfoodmedia.org.